Hello, and welcome to History Reconsidered, a podcast dedicated to taking a deep dive into historical issues and events and relating them to the modern world. I'm your host, Jarrett Stedman, and I'm joined by my co-host, Samantha Mitra. On this week's episode, we'll be talking about the Barbary Wars. And Samantha, I think we both wanted to talk about this particular subject because of current events at the moment where uh, the U.S. is engaged in, I guess, in the bureaucratic uh, terminology and overseas contingency operation against Houthis uh, in Yemen, a a terrorist or maybe not a terrorist, but now a terrorist again group. Um, And I think there's a lot to be learned and gleaned from what was essentially a four century struggle between uh, European states and, and the Barbary states in North Africa that led to uh, the end of the Barbary states uh, during the 19th century. And this really, uh, as we as we discussed before this podcast, I think there's a lot to be gleaned uh, from these conflicts uh, in, that, in those centuries. Yeah, I think that's true. Um, the Barbary Wars is unique in a way that it, it happens in a world which is qualitatively similar to ours. It's a, it's a multipolar world, you know, a lot of states um they take care of their own interests there there is sort of like a global struggle going on between two major powers but also there are other powers which are rising at that point of time they have their own interests and it touches upon some of the some of the topics uh some of the concepts in international relations which are kind of like timeless in a way so for example uh, how do we deal with human traffickers? You know, what, whose responsibility as a great power is to deal with human traffickers? That's one of the things, you know, that, that is timeless, sort of. What do we do with piracy? How do we, is, is it the responsibility of the hegemon to, to clean up and open trade routes and seaborne trade? I mean, is that, is that like a normative thing or is that dependent on interests? So all of these things are, you know, it, it, they have been, you know, we have, we have revisited these things in the past. Um, and we are continuing to do that re- in recent times, uh, whether it's in Somalian piracy or the Houthi rebels or, or you know, just opening up trade routes and sea routes in, in South China Sea. Um, but also, uh, you're right, the, when we talk about the Barbary Wars, we have to also talk about how the Barbary Wars ended and what kind of world it started. You know, Barbary Wars was essentially fundamentally a time where it, it, it consolidated a worldview where colonialism is the determinant factor when it keeps to ordering the world. So if we consider that there are regions in the world which are never going to be civilized or orderly, what you know does that leave leave us to do? I mean these are these are some of the basic philosophical questions and I think Barbary Wars is that's why one of the most topical subjects uh, to talk about. Um, there is a whole lot of history um, before the actual war happened. Uh, what would you think about as a good starting point to talk about how Algeria has been a has been a has been a place which has faced so much problems with European and American navies? Yeah, absolutely. You know, you know I was thinking, you know, when you're talking, you talk about the, the kind of complicating issues and how the Barbary Wars were a kind of transformation to the modern world. I think. A huge part of both the the conflict, the, the 400 year really conflict between European states and the Barbary states, and then the eventual conclusion is the kind of transition in sort of international law and norms as far as free trade and trade. I mean, I think, you know, going back and kind of telling the history of these states is very important because 
the way the, the, the Barbary pirates, these North African countries, which are Morocco, Tunis, Algiers, Tripoli, these, these North African states, the way they saw it is that piracy and taking essentially captives and booty on the high seas was a legitimate way to not only um, enrich themselves, it was basically the basis of their economy, uh, it was also a basis of political legitimacy. Uh, in these regimes for a very long time. You can see this throughout their history. It's it's leaders in Morocco, or Tunis, Algiers, Tripoli, they had to essentially bring in wealth to their countries that were in many ways quite poor uh, at that time in history, uh, bring in ships, bring in slaves that contributed to their economies. And if they didn't do so, uh, they could quickly see themselves out of power or deposed by somebody else who would do it just as well or better. And they had quite a, a system for a long time, for uh, really 400 years, until the mid, uh, early mid part of the 19th century. Uh, this system worked fantastically well, because if you look at where they're placed on a map in the Mediterranean Sea, they have a perfect position to raid trade and commerce in that region, that the coastline in North Africa is easy to uh, create essentially a series of coastal forts. The, the coastline is very difficult to navigate. And it's quite difficult, especially for the European powers of, let's say, the 1500s, to wage an offensive war against these Barbary states. To, to march in and try to stop them from doing what they're doing would have taken an enormous amount of resources and logistics that most were simply incapable of doing. And on top of that, it wouldn't be particularly worthwhile because as soon as they, they did march in, uh, the, most of the time what would happen is they would simply scatter to the wind, wait a little while, and then resume their activity. So the system that was created uh, was essentially a system of uh, piracy and tributes, which is essentially what most European countries did for nearly 400 years. They, they paid a series of tributes to the, to the various Barbary uh, leaders, whoever they might be, the Barbary leaders would accept that for a little while. As soon as the contract came close to an end, they would take a few more ships captive. They would enslave a few more people and they would restart negotiations. And this pattern worked for very successfully for a long time. Uh, and, and it was, it was, uh, it, it, it really was quite successful. It, it, especially when you consider that in earlier centuries, the technological gap between many of these North African countries and European countries was not as extreme as later times, they could very successfully use their ships to attack commerce on the high seas, in the Mediterranean in particular, uh, without serious repercussions. And so you can understand why this worked for so long, it, why it worked as well as it did, and why it became a serious issue for a lot of European leaders. Do you go in and fight a costly war, or do you pay these people off? And if you pay one off, you have to pay the other ones off, too, because there are a bunch of other uh, pirates who essentially have the same system going. And if one guy's getting paid something, he says, well, why did that guy get paid more than me? Um, so you can really see why the system worked for, for, for a very long time and why it was something that was difficult strategically to deal with. Yeah. Um, interesting thing about that you mentioned about the, the how poor some of the Barbary states were. Um, North Africa relatively was extremely privileged because it had the backing of both the Ottomans 
um, which was a huge source of of money coming. I mean, they were individually poor states, um, and their their economy was dependent a lot on on piracy and all other um, uh, other stuff. But also, um, there was this book I read about. It's called Liquid Gold or something like that. It's about uh, slavery um, that happened about when the Barbary pirates used to take Circassian slaves from uh, then Georgia, um, north of Armenia, and also Irish. Um, so they used to like raid ports and take Irishmen and Irish women and used to sell them to the Ottoman Empire. And, uh, and, and that's interesting because, you know, when we talk about Europe, we kind of like talk about in the context of colonialism and how powerful Europe was compared to, to all these other subaltern states, so to speak. But there was this huge issue where European merchant navy, European, you know, population were extremely under attacks from in, in both, for example, next to the Aden, uh, which is like current Houthi problems that's happening from the yeah, uh, in the Arabian Sea, but also in the Mediterranean from the Barbary pirates. So the the, the power dynamic between, you know, the two uh, peoples were kind of like lopsided in a way. Um you mentioned the European conflict. Do you think this conflict was because, you know, it, it, it was kind of like residual after the reconquering in Spain and the driving back of the Moorish power? And from then on, you know, the Moorish power went and kind of like settled down in North African coastline, whether it's in Tunisia or Algeria. And that sort of created this this uh, civilizational breaking point in a way where, you know, that was, this was inevitable. Or do you think like it's more, um, more of an economic, economic idea that no matter who would have settled there, it would have happened anyway because they were in control of the sea lines. No, I, I, th- I think that that was a huge part of this conflict was the la- the, the waning in power of the kind of, well, the Muslim populations, the Muslim, the Moorish essentially of North Africa losing, spent the end of the reconquista, which really took place at the end of the 1400s is where you see an explosion of this activity. There's no longer the kind of Muslim conquest that you saw in previous centuries. Of course, they've lost most of um, most entirely have lost Spain and pushed into North Africa. And there's a certain element of desperation uh, in their, in their actions because they were pushed in into a corner, certainly economically, they had no ability to wage offensive warfare against European states. Spain and Portugal at that point had become world powers. In fact, you could say that in late 1400s, there was no uh, kingdom in the world as powerful as Spain was. And so I think there was certainly, I think the the efforts of the Reconquista and the events uh, of the previous centuries pushed them into what they saw was a necessary response. And of course, because there was the religious divide, it allowed them to justify their their, their slavery. They, they were they were in a certain sense happy they had Christian neighbors because they were allowed to enslave Christians rather than enslaving. They were not generally allowed to enslave Muslims. In fact, that was actually one of the uh, sort of the outs for those who had been enslaved by the Barbary states was conversion to Islam. That essentially, if you if you converted you could potentially get out of, of slavery. And, but of course, many simply refused. And of course, also uh, many rejected the idea that the people had actually converted, saying that you're only doing this because you want to get out of slavery. 
Um, that was that was very common during these times. But it, it was also true that many did actually those who had been enslaved, Europeans who were Christians, converted to Islam and fought alongside the Barbary states. Uh, many of the captains of the Barbary ships in many of these countries were actually originally European Christians who basically went uh, turncoat and turned a very lucrative trade themselves and basically replicated uh, the, the very thing that had led them to slavery to begin with. So it kind of created a, a complicated uh, arrangement uh, for these states. And of course, the slavery that, that did take place uh, in the North African states, of course, you know, you talk to the average young American now, they think that uh, the United States invented slavery or something, some nonsense like that. Uh, was quite a, I would say, complicated and foundational system to, to the Barbary states. It was, it was really baked into their society. In fact, at the very end stage of, of the, the conflict with the Barbary pirates, part of their argument was that, you know, we have to do this. Is our, this is our way of life. This is a, baked in to how our civilization exists. We have to take slaves because it's the foundation of our economic life. It's the foundation of our societies. Um, of course, to be taken as a, a slave of the Barbary states was often uh, would lead to a life of, of misery and hell. Uh, the conditions in some of these uh, in some of these states was was almost unbelievable, honestly. Uh, especially reading some of these accounts from personal eye hand accounts. Uh, there was actually one uh, account that I read. Morocco, in particular, was known to be particularly heinous toward its slaves and. If, if, if the audience has seen the movie uh, Batman, where these people are basically down in this, this ditch and this hole and they're in the dark, so that was essentially what the conditions were in these large holding area, areas that they had uh, in the Barbary states, where they essentially kept the slaves that they took back from their, their raiding expeditions. So um, it was quite a, a horrifying thing. And of course, to many of the European powers that saw their citizens be essentially scooped up uh, and thrown into these these dungeons and and tortured and killed in terrible ways, uh, there was always a demand for some kind of response, some way to to fight back and do something because Christians, uh, European Christians, were basically being thrown into dungeons uh, and and kept in a, in a life of of toil and misery, and so there was a huge amount of demand for these states to actually do something and 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 send out an expedition, send out. Uh, the military essentially to, to handle it, to, to effectively to end it. Yeah, so the, sorry, the book that I mentioned before was not Liquid Gold, it's White Gold. I forgot about it. I just I just Googled the name. Uh, it's by Giles Milton. It's about a million European slaves. A million European slaves. It's unthinkable. People don't even talk about that. Like, you're, you're absolutely right. When we talk about slavery, we usually just talk about, you know, uh, slaves coming from Africa, even though that's a complicated story because it's, it was mostly African kingdoms which were selling those slaves. But... But yeah, it, it it happened exactly in the reverse with with a million Europeans, you know, being sold in North Africa. Um, I'd actually like to read. There's there's a, an account from this this great book. It's called um, "The Barbary Slaves" by by written by Stephen Clissold in the 1970s, and it actually gives a description. It says uh, several captives have left descriptions of life in the Bagnios. Those were these large detention centers, which seem to have resembled a cross between a Nazi concentration camp, an English debtors' prison, and a Soviet labor camp. Um, obviously, not uh, not not a good time to be thrown into one of these one of these dungeons. And this was just reality. This is the reality of what it was like for 400 years, as millions of people 
uh, were put in, in bondage, essentially, with oftentimes little recourse. Of course, you could sometimes be ransomed, and that was a huge part of the barber economy was ransoming captives. But if you didn't have the money, you couldn't pay up, or the, the whoever was in charge decided that he wanted to keep the slaves anyway, as they did often. Uh, Morocco was, I think, notorious uh, for this. Uh, it was too bad. There was nothing you could do. You were stuck in a life of slavery in one of these terrible places. And uh, that was, again, not something that's often talked about in, when we talk about uh, slavery in the modern world, but was very much a part of, of, of history for, for many centuries until it was ended in the 19th century. So what was the cause uh, between the, the conflict between France and Algeria, which is kind of like a precursor to modern barbary wars? Um, that happened, I think it was in the 17th century, if I'm, if I'm remembering correctly. Um, I think the, the first one was, yes, invasion of Algiers. Bombardment was in 1784, invasion was in 1775. Um, so give us a brief background as to why France, of all countries, suddenly thought that this is the place we are going to bombard. Yeah, it's interesting because it, it was it was not just France. It was a series of European countries that had bombarded uh, the Barbary states. And of course, the long history of France and Algiers, probably more known in the modern context because Algiers eventually became a French colony in, in the 19th century. Um, but before that time, the European powers, I would say, just didn't have the capacity to colonize of the North African states. There was, there was the, the technological difference was not so great. Um, they were more of a, a long complication in trade and the region rather than being somebody who could simply be stopped uh, at the end of a gun. And so in the 1700s, I think you really start to see a gap open up between the technological power of a lot of the European states and the Barbary states. Um, but there was, of course, a lot of conflict between the various powers, so between France and Britain and, and the Dutch and, and the Spanish. And many of these states had a reason. And this is a kind of a high age of, of mercantilism, uh, the idea that uh, in, in trade, if something hurts my enemy uh, more than it hurts me, that's a good thing. And so while each one of these, these kind of burgeoning states like France, like Britain, tried to contain the problem of the Barbary state slaves, or excuse me, the Barbary states, they didn't necessarily want to fully solve the issue of the Barbary states because in many ways, they sort of kind of kept down their opponents, their rivals in Europe. I mean, that's, that's the, the reality. And you could say the kind of ruthless nature of this is that um, if, if you're a country like a Britain or a France, especially Britain, you had it was much easier for you to control the effects of of the Barbary pirates because you had a powerful navy that could patrol the seas that could actually uh, enact retribution. If you were a smaller power, that was much more difficult, especially if you didn't have a powerful navy. If you wished to have any kind of commerce in the region, you had to hope that one of the other powers could protect your ships. Or you are out of luck. Your people would be snagged by one of these pirates and, and ransomed. Uh, and of course, this, this leads to, I think, what many Americans in particular uh, remember about the Barbary states, which is the, the various conflicts that the United States, as, as it became an independent country, had with, with the Barbary states. The, what we call the Barbary Wars. There was actually two wars. Uh, one in the early 1800s, one ending just after the 
the War of 1812 and the Napoleonic Wars uh, that was created in part because of the War of Independence, because of the American Revolution and the end of the protection that the British Navy provided the 13 colonies. And I think that's that's it's what's it's very interesting because I think Americans the, the whole idea was that they were going to create for themselves independence a few years after the 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 revolutionary war was ended many Americans felt more dependent as than ever because there was no way to essentially stop the the raids on American shipping uh through the Mediterranean because of the lack of the protection of the British navy and this kind of setups uh, lasted a long time. It was a very, it was a huge challenge for early American leaders from the, the Washington administration through the Madison administration. Dealing with the Barbary pirates was one of the top items in foreign policy. Even though uh, th this was a, a, a place far away, the U.S. had a huge amount of interest, especially in the Mediterranean trade. The U.S. was very much engaged in the carrying trade at that time, not necessarily uh, selling goods, but transporting goods. And so the Barbary pirates through this time recognizing that the United States se seems to have a bit of money and had a bit of wealth, didn't have much protection. Uh, they used the, the opportunity to raid as many American ships as possible, enslaving uh, American citizens. And for a country that was, you know, built on the idea of, of uh, independence and free from, from uh, tyranny, the idea of American citizens on the high seas being snagged by a hostile power and thrown into bondage uh, was a horrifying thing for many. And so it took really generations of uh, American statesmanship, almost 30 years, to eventually resolve the issue. So Jefferson, from what I remember, wasn't keen on on, on this conflict. Um, he, he, for several times, he wanted to, you know, he, he sought... Uh, the help of France, and then he he decided that you know he has to go to the Congress, and he also wanted to uh, have sort of like a fair. I mean, the American Navy essentially was fundamentally uh, created to to tackle piracy and and slavery. I mean, this is something which people. Usually, I mean, we the American forces that the original Republican idea was that there would not be any standing army. There would be different states and militias and uh, different national guards. And, you know, uh, states would have their own militias, which would essentially, which currently, you know, as we call national guards, and they would unite if there is a threat to the Republic. But on the other hand, there would be a standing Navy because America at the end of the day is a seafaring nation and the seas where, you know, the American destiny is, is decided. Um, but Jefferson himself, he he wasn't a pacifist, of course, by no means. But he, but he was more than anyone. He was not willing to to join this old world conflict in a way. But it, it it's sort of like a in in an interesting way. It was almost like a like a revealing act that Jefferson realized that idealism doesn't it won't take you much. You at the end of the day, you have to be a realist about about foreign powers. Don't you think? Yeah, it's actually, it's very interesting that the, the conflict between the, the parties at the time, and the parties I mean basically, uh, you could say Washington, George Washington, John Adams, Alexander Hamilton, the Federalists, and Thomas Jefferson, the so-called Republicans, not, not the modern Republican Party, but the, the old Republicans. And there really was kind of two different attitudes for how we're going to deal with the Barbary Pirates. The Federalists especially under John Adams and George Washington really was uh, 
very frustrated by the issue. The United States had no Navy basically whatsoever uh, during his presidency. He saw the wisdom in creating one to do so. Very complicated, as you said, because many Americans were hostile. Um, John Adams thought that essentially the best way to deal with the Barbary pirates was to do what most of the European countries had done already, which is pay tribute, to simply pay them uh, to not attack shipping. In fact, he thought, well, if we if we pay them, it'll actually be cheaper for us because uh, we won't have to pay for an expensive war uh, on the high seas. You won't have to pay for uh, a, a very expensive uh, engagement with these parts that, that may never end, that we will simply be trapped in a, in a constant war with 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 the Barbary states, so we might. But at the same time, uh, building building a navy on top of that, building a blue water navy. It was under the Adams administration that they started a project to build the so-called six frigates. Uh, there's actually a very good book by Ian Toll called Six Frigates that was a Federalist proposal to start building a blue water navy, uh, build some of these frigates, which turned out to be among the best in the world. The American shipyards were some of the best in the world. Um, the Jefferson administration had a very different attitude toward the conflict. While they didn't want to continue to pay tribute to the Barbary pirates, that was offensive. And I think most people certainly did it. Jefferson was insistent that we basically cut off paying tribute at the same time while not funding the Navy, which is, is a curious combination of policies when you, when you consider the issue. Jefferson thought that we could essentially, the United States could have essentially just a a gunboat navy where we protect our own shoreline. He thought that dealing with the Barbary pirates, who were very low tech in comparison to most European countries, could be a simple operation uh, that he would that would not be particularly difficult to just basically go over there, uh, teach him a lesson. That would be that. Uh, he so was disabused very quickly. What changed was, of course, the the actual conflict itself. When when Jefferson finally. Uh, reached the presidency and realized that using a series of gunboats or a few handful of gunboats wasn't nearly enough to protect what at that point had become a massive amount of trade through the Mediterranean. The, the, these, there simply was not enough offensive force, even with the ships that had been built uh, by the Federalists before him, that there was simply no way. Uh, this, this actually triggered uh, a huge amount of uh, you could say at the time, a naval buildup. Um, but Jefferson did unleash this very small Navy, uh, especially in the first Barbary War, to go deal with the problem. The Navy that was built by Adams and the Federals that he and his party had had criticized, uh, he eventually decided that we're going to do a show of force in the Mediterranean, that they're going to send in the ships, send in the Marines. Of course, this is where we get the, the Marine Corps a song from the, the, the halls of Montezuma to the yep. shores of Tripoli, yep. uh, of Tripoli very famous, yeah. um, and to basically smack them in the face uh, that they're no longer going to be able to simply raid American ships with impunity, that the U.S. military, as small as it was, the Navy was going to actually do something about it. Um, and in that first war, it, it sort of went unevenly. Um, but it was also a punitive campaign, though it wasn't. It wasn't a war. Jefferson didn't never intended yes. to have a war, which was more of a Madisonian idea, which is the second one that, which was the bigger one. Um, but Jefferson wanted to have like just a punitive raid and kind of like you know, as you mentioned, a smack in the face, and then you know, get something in return and then move away, right? 
That, that's right. In fact, initially, he sort of sent a show of force into the Mediterranean. This is, and then it gets in kind of the complications about, you know, where's the line where you actually have to have a congressional declaration of war? Initially, they simply sent in a show of force, uh, a small part of the Navy to show that we were there, that we were there fighting, um, realizing that that wasn't really enough. They did eventually get a congressional declaration of war to actually take offensive action against the Barbary pirates, which they did successfully. And there unfortunately was some initial problems. And in fact, there was a uh, one of the, the the six frigates that was that was built by the U.S. that was deployed to the region, the USS Philadelphia, actually ran aground and was captured by the Barbary pirates. Um which led to one of the most incredible operations, I think, in U.S. military history, where uh, Stephen Decatur, who wasn't very well known at that point, who was a, a junior officer, led a small expedition to essentially blow up the USS Philadelphia that had been captured by these pirates. They couldn't allow a U.S. warship to stay in their hands and actually was able to sneak into the harbor at Tripoli, uh, plant explosives, blow up the ship, got out learned that his brother had been killed uh, in the conflict, went back in uh, and fought essentially in hand-to-hand -hand combat a man who had killed his brother uh, and was able to kill him and get back out again. So this became a very famous incident uh, in early U.S. military history. Um, but it was actually a two-part operation. It wasn't just a, a naval attack uh, on the harbor at Tripoli. There was also a, a ground campaign led by a man named William Eaton, who actually led an expedition through Egypt uh, across the desert. Nobody thought this could actually be done. Uh, led an expedition, which he, he actually got uh, one of the, a brother of the, the Bay of Tunis uh, to essentially lead a kind of uh, insurrection and ended up at the very uh, gates of his, of his capital. Um, and so you had the Navy bombarding the coastline. You had the, the, the Army, essentially, the, the Marines, excuse me, uh, attacking the city, and Tunis basically sued for peace. Uh, and the, the Jefferson administration was very keen on getting that peace. Uh, of course, the, the tributes had to continue, and that was a very important factor, that the tributes continued to go on as they were. Uh, but there was promises, of course, from Tunis and, and other countries to essentially stop raiding American ships. This actually didn't go over well with all the officers who fought in the campaign, especially Eaton, who decided that he should have been allowed to not just take Tunis, but to, to march on Morocco as well, create a huge political headache for the Jefferson administration, saying that he was weak and vacillating, that he didn't do nearly enough, that this problem was going to pop up again because of his actions. And to a certain extent, you could say he was vindicated because even though this, this war was successful and the, 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 the Tunis regime essentially decided uh, to stop for a time attacking American ships, very shortly thereafter, the, the raids began again, as, as was the pattern throughout history, throughout the, the history of the Barbary states. You know, even when you have what this case was a fairly small show of force, um, the, again, their whole system was based on this idea of piracy. So as soon as they, they felt that they had a moment of weakness from the United States and other European countries, they went right back to raiding again. That's, that was the pattern. So there was this conflicting idea, even in the U.S. at that point of time, where uh, on one hand, the conflict was looked at as something to be done because of American interest. But also, on the other hand, it was an idea of prestige. I mean, I 
John Adams, for example, uh, John Quincy Adams, for example, who is who's, who's considered to be one of the greatest risk trainers of, of U.S. foreign policy. And, you know, he I mean, he's a, he's a classical realist who, you know, wants to focus more on the American southern border and, you know, the Latin America and American sphere of influence rather than like going out abroad to slay monsters, you know, uh, going abroad for monsters to destroy and all that. Even he quoted, he was quoted as saying that, you know, this this gets the American nation and the American Navy at par. And I hope the Europeans remember that we are doing our part as as one of the prestigious members of the international community, uh, something to that effect. Um, the second Barbary Wars was fundamentally a, a sideshow of the Napoleonic conflict, don't you think? I mean, at that point of time, after the War of 1812, uh, which is directly related to this Barbary War, Britain paid, played a very cynical role um, in that conflict. Um, but but fundamentally, the second war was uh, the, the emergence of America as a naval superpower. Yeah, I, I think it's really important in the history of the United States. You know, these Some of these early conflicts, and I would say the War of 1812 was similar in the sense that it, it established the United States as an independent nation that, that couldn't be trifled with, that was going to stand on its own two feet, was, again, was going to give a show of force. And this is something that, that many in Europe simply thought the, they thought the United States was incapable of doing something like this, to, to even create an expedition that could go and deal with the pirates. It had been such a problem for many of these more powerful European countries for so long. And establishing the respect, the international respect that the United States eventually had. I mean, it was quite impressive for what was essentially thought to be a, a backwater series of colonies, a, a people who were especially to the European mind, we're in a perpetual state of anarchy, uh, to, to essentially mount a fairly complicated series of military expeditions against, while the Barbary states were not the most powerful foe, they were oftentimes a, a serious one. I mean, these were people that were used to fighting on the high seas. They were used to fighting European powers and others. They were, they were a worthy opponent, in a sense. And for countries like Great Britain that were extraordinarily powerful, that had a navy to deal with this, they were very happy to see a, a burgeoning United States struggle to deal with the Barbary pirates. In fact, especially uh, you know through the, the Napoleonic Wars, they essentially turned a blind eye to it because the hopes were essentially that they would ruin American trade in the region, not just American trade, and Swedish and other countries too, that they saw as rivals. I would say it's similar to, for instance, how a big business will oftentimes want regulation of an industry because they think it'll put the smaller businesses out of business. I think it was there was a very sim, uh, similar principle in play. And from the British perspective, you know, why should they help the United States? Why should they uh, guarantee the trade of for of U.S. ships through the region? I mean, after all, these are people who had just rebelled, who had declared their independence. I think the attitude was, well, let them deal with it. I mean, they they're the ones who wanted this. They didn't want to pay for our, our Navy when they were part of the British Empire. Uh, let them handle the problem. And for the United States, it was very important to show that the country could handle the problem, that ultimately it was capable of, of having a blue water Navy, of protecting the rights of its citizens. And I think very importantly, at the end of the Second Barbary War, which was really, I think, the most important moment when the U.S. sent an even larger expedition out to deal with the Barbary states, a series of Barbary states. And this was 
Interesting enough, led by that same man, Stephen Decatur, of course, had risen up the ranks and become one of the most famous men of, in America. The U.S. deployed not only frigates, but a few ships of the line as well, um, and had a massive show of force, uh, a, a fairly quick and brutal war against, against the Barbary states. When Decatur uh, sailed his ships into the harbor uh, at Tripoli, excuse me, Algiers, uh, the, the, the day essentially asked, well, can we, can we pause, uh, negotiations for a bit, uh, or, or basically ask for a short ceasefire or we have negotiations. Decatur said, no, we can't. We're going to continue to attack everything we wish to do, uh, until we've secured a deal. Um, and part of that deal was something unique in the, the really almost 400 years of conflict between the Barbary States and European powers that the U S secured a treaty which said there would be no tribute given to the Barbary states. And not only would there be no tribute given to the Barbary states, the Barbary states would have to pay the United States. They would have to pay the U.S. back uh, for the ships and the people they had taken on the high seas. Oh, and on top of that, they were to release all U.S. citizens in their, in their captivity at that time. And on top of that, they were to release all of the European Christians also held in captivity by the Barbary states. And I think actually it was it was sort of that last stipulation among all these that you could see the kind of beginning of the end of the Barbary states because and and the the increase in reputation of the U.S. This was a very impressive thing to many of the other European powers that wow this this pipsqueak United States went in there handled business didn't just protect their own citizens but they let our own our people out too why haven't our governments done something uh, to get our people freed and I think that really set off the long-term destruction of the Barbary states, where the European powers decided that, especially after the Napoleonic Wars, where there had been now suddenly peace in Europe and not nearly the kind of conflict that existed before, that it was finally time to take care of this issue uh, with these people that had been a thorn in the side of the European continent for far too long. The most interesting thing that you mentioned is uh, the, the end of the Napoleonic Wars uh, allowed the allowed Europe to actually concentrate externally. Um, before that, for at least a hundred years, they were like consumed with internal warfare in within the continent and for Britain and France, like wars in their colonies. Um, Decatur, as you mentioned, he was he was at that point of time a commodore. Um, he was not a junior officer anymore. And I think the other one was Bainbridge, who was uh, Bainbridge and Decatur were the two officers of U.S. Navy. And you're right. Interestingly, we have forgotten about this. We don't do that anymore. But U.S. went and got tributes from the place which they bombarded. I mean, th if that principle was followed in the global war on terror, for example, where we actually it's kind of like sounds Trumpian in a way, like we're going to go and take Iraq's war oil. But <laughs> but but that's fundamentally, you know, the principle that was the early American Republic was based on that principle. Like, yeah, we are going to we're going to have this punitive raid and we are going to extract so many things from this country because at the end of the day, we have power and they don't. Um, it's also interesting that, as you mentioned, that was the end. That was the beginning of the end. It was it was the it was the emergence of U.S. as a naval power at par with the big greatest American uh, European navies, but also. It was the beginning of the end for Barbary states. Um, within two years from the Madisonian expedition, uh, the bombardment of Algiers happened under the joint Anglo-Dutch Navy, which which is one of my favorite events of of of, of history. I mean, I, I, you can see you can see behind me that that painting, which I which is an original commission. 
That is a bombardment of all Jews. I'm going to post it in the Twitter when we when we post this episode. Um, but but it happened under under Viscount Edward Peleo. Um, Peleo was an interesting character. He he was he he always lived under the shadow of Nelson and uh, and and you know Cockburn and all those uh, other superior naval officers. But he was actually from a very working class background, which is again unthinkable in those days. Britain it was a classist society where you America you can rise up you know regardless of where you come from. But in Britain at that in those days it was unthinkable. But there's there's this guy who's from a minor nobility like a very you know localized landlord family um but essentially he just bluffed his way and bombarded and 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 freed the slaves and ended ended the christian slavery in in the north african coastline it's one of the most interesting episodes uh of human history yeah it it, it really is actually it's it, it's it's it as you said there's there's kind of great pride for the u.s in, in british navies and what took place during those times of course for me, you know, it's funny that we have the different perspectives of the kind of British perspective and an American perspective because men like Stephen Decatur, Bainbridge, who you mentioned, who actually sort of got embarrassed during the first Barbary War when because he was the captain of the USS Philadelphia that got trapped in the coastline. Sending him back essentially to take care of business was, was very important for Americans himself. And by that time, many of the men uh, who were basically the, the, the naval officers at the time were highly competent men who were at that point, seasoned veterans, both in the British and American navies. I mean, this had been after the the War of 1812, the Napoleonic Wars. These were these were people who were serious. They knew warfare. They knew naval warfare. Uh, they weren't to be trifled with. And so you see from both the American and British navies uh, supreme competence in how they not only won militarily, but how they understood the situation politically as well and, and the negotiations that they had uh, with the Barbary pirates, um, you know, like a very different kind of mentality, I think, than you get in modernity, that this was not an operation for some, you know, grand, uh, you know, humanitarian cause. This was to punish people for essentially abusing the rights of their people on the high seas, the citizens of their countries. You know, they were basically going to say, you can't do that to our people anymore. And if you do that, we're going to make your life a living hell. We're going to break all your toys. We're going to come in. We're going to we're going to set the terms because we're stronger than you, uh, and we're in the right. We're in the just. We're on the right side here. We, you've you've violated uh, the kind of basics of freedom of trade and navigation, and uh, and that that brought an end to four centuries of slavery, of piracy, of really a shutdown of much of the trade in the Mediterranean. It led to another era of. Of prosperity and commerce actually in the Mediterranean because the issue had been dealt with and dealt with forcefully. It didn't require necessarily an, an occupation of those countries. What it re required is a show of force showing essentially you can't get away with this or you're going to pay a serious price. And they certainly did. Yeah. I think the, the interesting thing that you mentioned is like every time we hear about any modern operations tackling with slavery or or you know piracy on the seas we, we talk in that managerial idea of restoring deterrence like where when when you see all these past events whether it's decatur or paleo you know bombarding all years they don't talk about restoring deterrence um simply because you restore deterrence with some with an entity that you consider to be your equal 
you know, the uh, America or Britain or France in those days didn't consider the Algerian pirates and slavers to be their equal anyway. I mean, that, that would give them a, a, a sense of legitimacy, which was denied. Um, uh, P- Edward Pelleo, Vicon Pelleo, for example, um, went to lead this joint Anglo-Dutch naval flotilla and told his sailors to negotiate with shots and nothing but shots. Now that's a that's a, that's a phrase of you know not you know operation. It's it's punishment. We are we're punishing you because as you mentioned, you've done wrong to us. You've enslaved our people. You've you know uh, hampered our trade. You've you, you know it's nothing normative. There is no grand theory. It's a very simple you know idea that you you're a wrong actor and we're going to punish you because we are more more powerful than you. We are in the right. It's just war in a way. Um, also, interestingly, he, he he quite literally bluffed his way. Like it's this interesting part from this book, um, which I'm going to mention at the end of the end of the thing, is where he bombarded for a whole day, and then he went and sent a letter to the to the to the Algerian day, as uh, saying, um, "England does not war for destruction of cities. I'm unwilling to visit your personal cruelties upon the unoffending inhabitants of the country, and therefore offer you the same terms of peace which I conveyed to you yesterday." In my sovereign's name, um, if you ha- accept these terms, you'll have peace. Otherwise, there will be no peace with England. So fundamentally, like he he bombarded. Uh, he knew that it's not it's not going to be a war of occupation. You know, you can't you cannot change the culture of North Africa. But what you could do is um, bombard the cities, make them understand that this is you know unsustainable, and then get all your uh, whatever return that you need from there and free the free the uh, enslaved population and move on. However, post-Barbary Wars and post, you know, uh, the destruction of North African power, so to speak, uh, and and the moment Europe and America both sort of like started to look outward, America started to look towards the West, you know, the expansion and manifest destiny and all that happened, whereas Europe started to look at colonial uh, colonialism. The idea came to force that, you know, you cannot just do punitive actions where you actually provide order. I think that's extremely important when we talk about um, human trafficking in Latin America, for example, the mass migration that's happening when we are, you know, all these major tracts, major fast, fast area of land under the capacity and power of cartels. When now, whether how would you deal with them, whether you have like a punitive operation and punish them or whether you just provide an order and governance. I think these are some of the very basic philosophical questions that one has to uh, think about looking at Barbary Wars. What do you think? Yeah, and you know what? This is what led to the actions, especially of France, as uh, moving along to the 1820s and 30s, dealing with Algiers, which is oftentimes the, the most recalcitrant of the Barbary states. And Algiers made the big mistake to slap a French diplomat and the, the, the Bay of Algiers. He slapped a French diplomat. They fired on uh, French ships that were sent to negotiate. And in France, and of course, there was a, a reaction movement. Essentially, the, the royalists had taken power again. They thought, well, you know, look, we've dealt with this, this problem for so long. These people clearly just don't get it. Um, we're going we're gonna to basically take over and start dictating our terms. These people clearly just will not change their ways. Uh, we're, they're going to continue to enslave our citizens if we don't do something about it. So they sent a overwhelming uh, force to essentially bring an end to Algiers as an independent country, which they did, which they they basically colonized 
Algiers and ended their independence. I mean, this, you know, you talk about how this, this relates to modernity in the, the, the 20th century. Many know about the famous film, the, the Battle of Algiers, the conflict that happened between France and their, their colony of Algiers during the mid 20th century. But that was precipitated by the fact that Algiers for a long time, you could say, was basically operating as a rogue state that was happily, happily enslaving and attacking people on this high seas uh, that ran into a power that was far greater than their own, that they had trifled with too much, where they had acted Im improperly diplomatically uh, and lost their independence because of it. Um, and you could say in, in many ways justified and certainly nobody shed a tear for Algiers uh, in the 19th century when their independence came to an end. They had caused so many people so many so much trouble for such a long time uh, that I think many were were happy about it because it created some an additional order, uh, especially as the world was moving into a world of, uh, this was in the middle, at the beginning of the Industrial Revolution, where free trade was becoming uh, the, the kind of philosophy of Western powers, this idea that uh, freedom of navigation on the seas and trade is better than, than open conflict. And so the kind of vision of the Barbary states was very much in conflict with that. And because of the, the wealth and prosperity that was created under the systems of these, these Western European powers, it was possible to do something like what they did to Algiers, something that would certainly not have happened during the medieval era or earlier, certainly not. Uh, but it was very possible in the mid-19th century where you see the disparity between Western European countries and the rest of the world really start to open up and change dramatically. Yeah, at the end of the day, you're absolutely right. I mean, this is the, even in the, when we're talking about the future, like what's going to determine is not just, you know, what ideology and what power rules, but actually the relative difference between the, the between the technology of, of the two countries. I mean, which one of the, one of my articles that came out recently on drones kind of like touches upon the point. It's probably a topic for a very different conversation. Um, but that does bring us to the point of the end point of our current episode and talk about the Houthis, for example. Like, um, is that is that can the Barbary Wars provide us with a template of how to do punitive action? Can the Barbary Wars provide us a template with just how much congressional uh, war powers needs to be taken for punitive actions. Uh, can is colonialism, neo-colonialism, the answer to human trafficking in Latin America and and Africa? You know what 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 lessons can we draw from from Barbary Wars to modern modern life, modern times? Yeah, you you had a, a, an excellent piece in the American Conservative, uh, how the Yemen strikes helped China and Europe, but not America. And I thought you had a very interesting interesting take on the matter. I mean, you seem to be a little bit divided on the wisdom of the kind of action that the Biden administration has taken to attack the Houthis in the way that they are. Um, but I, I think the, the important take I got from your from your piece is that how much we need to be really weighing uh, U.S. interests in the region. You know, what really is the right uh, take? I mean, obviously, much of the trade through the Red Sea it doesn't just affect the United States. It affects much of Europe. It especially affects countries like China, which I think the majority of the trade through the Red Sea uh, is actually uh, affects China, not the United States. And whether the United States should essentially take up 
unilateral action on behalf of other powers to deal with a problem that was created by others. Um, I, I think that it, that's a very interesting take. Could you talk more about it? Yeah, I mean, my there is this idea that really are considered to be like always restrainers and pacifists. I don't, I don't really buy that argument. I think realists show force when it's necessary. I mean, I was checking this force deployment today because I was doing research on on, on the Middle East, and currently there are twenty one. American warships, including a carrier group, when and one single carrier has got a 6,000 American soldiers there. Uh, Ten European ships, of which six are British, six Indian warships, and the rest Chinese and Russian and European, which is absurd. I mean, Europe has 21% of the trade that goes through uh, the sea routes in, in Aden, in, in Swaz and all that, you know, through North Africa. Um, I am not opposed to bombarding the Houthis or uh, having naval action. I think that's, as I mentioned at the start of the show, like I think that's a reason of the existence of the American Navy. I mean, everything else can be secondary, but fundamentally keeping the sea routes open is an American interest. Uh, that being said, as you mentioned uh, in, in the acts of Decatur, we are not getting things back from the people who we are helping or punishing. Either way, we are not, we are not, we are not, extracting security taxes, for example, from Europe. We are not extracting any kind of trade deal because the Chinese Navy is not bombarding the Houthis. They are not spending millions uh, in every single missile that they fire. You know, we are the ones who are doing it. So I think something of that has changed in the current American psyche and national security consensus where it's almost like in an autopilot. Oh, we have to do these things because we are America and we have to, but, but without considering as to what we are getting in return. Like I am happy, for example, to play the policeman in, in, in North Africa and Middle East, uh, at least in the sea routes, not like, you know, democracy promotion or all that, but keeping the sea routes open. Fair enough. America is a massive Navy. But on the other hand, that should also mean that Europe should give us, you know, either direct uh, cash. We have a $34 trillion in debt, which the early American Republic didn't have, you know, governing the, the, the sea routes. Uh, Jefferson would have, <laughs> would have been shocked that we are trying to save other people's ships uh, and not just American trade ships and American, you know, trade. So I think there is this mismatch between... Uh, as you mentioned, about the interests of what America needs to do and what the normative idea is. So we have to keep secrets open regardless of the cost and no matter who's who else is doing it or not. I think I think the second one is kind of like a received wisdom in D.C. currently, and I'm opposed to that one. I'm absolutely in, in favor of keeping secrets open as long as it's filling our, our coffers or it, it's, it's curdling down our debt. You know, it's we are having tariffs based on European companies and they are not the ones who are, you know, uh, benefiting from this, from our actions and from our money. Yeah, and and you know, of course, I mean, the big complication too is that the conflict between China and the United States. I mean, you could say that to a certain extent, Iran is very has operated very closely with China in the past. Certainly, um, much of what's happened there has affected Chinese trade and shipping. Uh, and yet they're essentially relying on the U.S. to essentially step in and, and deal with the issue. Um, you know, I, how much is it just, hey, let this let certain amount of it just be problem for China that they have to deal with it, much in the way that the United States had to deal with uh, you know, raiding on the high seas, the Barbary state. 
you know, how much should this just simply be, hey, if China's having an issue with this, that's their problem. We'll protect American ships. We'll protect American trade and the trade maybe of our allies. Uh, but, uh, you know, how much is, is spent on them? And, of course, what is ultimately the end game of this? You know, what are we going to get out of the Houthis in Yemen at the end of this? Is it just to, to you know, kill a few people in, in Yemen and blow up a few Houthis with kind of no resolution in sight and just do this? Uh, every time they get uh, instigated by Iran or whatever the, the, they are acting as a proxy for. So I think there are a lot of those issues, and I think not many explanations, unfortunately, for from American leadership. And I think that's been a, one of the big issues uh, throughout these wars. I think partially of the Biden presidency is that we're engaged in some of these conflicts with not very clear lines of what our ultimate objectives are, how we look to solve the problem, or even ultimately what the problem is. And I think that that leaves the Americas, especially in a country which you assume is a self-governing republic, I think that's highly problematic, especially when you consider that unlike yesteryear, where at least it was considered that Congress would have a, <laughs> the primary role in determining whether the United States goes to war and how it acts in those wars, that's now essentially the entire province of the presidency. And now you have a presidency uh, that doesn't even have to bother to explain itself. Um, that seems to be a huge problem for especially how we're dealing with with this issue, among many other issues um, that I think has really been very clear from the, the sort of opening days of this conflict. What books would you suggest uh, on this? It's, 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 it's a conflict spanning like 400 years, but, but what books would you suggest? Yeah, I, you know, the, as I as I mentioned before, the the Barbary Slaves by Stephen Clissold is a is a very good book written in the 1970s. I, I would highly recommend. There's a book by uh, Ian Toll called Six Frigates, which is about the building of the U.S. Navy. The Six Frigates, the uh, among them, the USS Constitution, one of the most famous ships in, in American history. Ships that fought not just uh, in the quasi war against France and the War of 1812, but in these these Barbary Wars, and was a, a highly effective navy, kind of showing how what was sort of a a pork project actually ended up being a a highly successful program to uh, make the U.S. into ultimately a world superpower. Um, there's another great book called The Barbary Wars by Frank Lambert that kind of uh, highlights all the issues involved, the political issues involved in the lead up to the Barbary Wars and its conclusion, mostly from a U.S. and United States perspective. Yeah, Frank Lambert is is a classic. Um, I would recommend the one whose name I fumbled uh, at the start. It's White Gold by Giles Milton. It gives a background of uh, of of the conflict. And the second book that I would say is by Stephen Taylor. Uh, it's Commander, the life and exploits of Britain's greatest frigate captain. It's it's on the life of Edward Pelle, who is, uh, as I mentioned, one of my favorite commanders of, of navies. Comes from a very normal background, but is very underappreciated and probably took part in one of the most pivoting conflicts of, of early 19th century. Absolutely. Well, that sounds like uh, that'll be about it on the Barbary Wars. And, and we're glad you joined us. And until next week. Thank you.